0: You know, I still have a healthy ego. I like to see what I'm capable of. When I sort of refound my endurance after uh, law school, when my marriage was falling apart, I mean, I was about 55, 60 pounds overweight, didn't like what I was turning into. I mean, I was always the type of person who could just do anything in any moment athletically. And I wasn't that person anymore. I'm like a puppy, you know, tired puppies are happy puppies. If I'm not doing something athletically, I just feel incomplete.
1: The Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend
2: and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Steve, it is great to be with you for another podcast, another Wednesday. Things are really good here. My calf has, I'd say, 90% of the way healed. I was out hiking this weekend, and I had no symptoms of exertional compartment syndrome. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm still a little euphoric from that, actually. Uh, for those who don't know or who are new to the podcast, I had pretty extensive surgery on my leg about three months ago, and it was a, a bit of a, a psychological thriller and tough decision in the sense that it's one of those things that the probability of it working was about 75%, but I was going to get better before getting worse. Uh, I went ahead and got the surgery. It seems like it worked. So I'm overjoyed about that.
1: All right. Brad is Brad is back. And you know, the other thing is we had our first day where it was like under 70 degrees. So it's now kind of enjoyable again to run. It's not miserable. So we're, we're both just cranking on the fitness side.
2: Yeah. Um, well, in terms of the intellectual side, we've got a really wonderful guest here today. But before we get into that guest, we wanted to remind everybody that this podcast is 100% community supported. What that means is that we don't have advertisements throughout the show, We're not peddling lotions, potions, pills, or mattresses. Um, That stuff just doesn't really align with our mission of simple, not easy, walking the path of sustainable excellence. What does align with our mission is deep reading. So the first way that you can support this podcast is by reading our books, Do Hard Things in the Practice of Groundedness, If you're more of an Audible or Libro type, you can also listen to those books. So they're available wherever you listen to or read books. And the second way that you can support the show is through community, which is another one of our core values. You can join our Patreon community in which you get quarterly mastermind groups, monthly book clubs where we read and discuss books with the authors of those books sustainable training and resilience guides, and all manner of other great goodies, as Steve likes to say. You can learn more about that over at www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. So again, if you like the show, you'll love our books. You'll get a lot out of our Patreon community. So check that stuff out. And uh, with that, let's dive right into the conversation with today's special guest. All right. So,
1: speaking of our Patreon community, you know who keeps that going? Who is the behind-the-scenes person who keeps the growth equation from, you know, drifting into iceberg and just sinking ship? Because that's what would occur if Brad the and Titanic. I were to do it. It would this. be
2: the growth <laughs> Titanic.
1: <laughs> yes, we would be done. Um, the behind-the-scenes person who does all the wonderful work to support what Brad and I do, keeps us on track.
0: Chris Douglas. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'll make sure my mom gives you the $20 for saying those nice things. (laughs) I love it. So, you know, maybe where we would start, because
1: you're much more than the growth equation, is you have a fascinating background. And for our listeners, I'd love to go all the way back to maybe your intro to athletic days because as we know you're actually quite a baseball player so let's start there
0: yeah well that's uh that's going way way back almost feels like a lifetime ago so uh i was born and raised in puerto rico and in the late 70s early 80s um anybody who was playing baseball wanted to be like their hero and my hero, Roberto Clemente. So all growing up, I wanted to be him. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. And, uh, you know, if you ask me now what I do for work, and you could ask pretty much any Puerto Rican of my age, if they're not a professional baseball player, they're a failed professional baseball player. So I fall into the latter camp, um, played all through high school, and it's pretty good, but not good enough to, to ever make it. So I decided to go to college. Incidentally, my mom would have disowned me if I didn't go to college and toiled in the minors. So, you know, it was kind of killing two birds with one stone there. But yeah, pretty athletic my whole life. Um, really into sports, baseball, soccer. In high school, I played soccer, basketball, football, track, baseball. So pretty active all around. and um, yeah. You're underselling yourself,
2: Chris. Weren't you drafted by the New York Mets?
0: I was I was but uh yeah you know the $5000 signing bonus to go go to the miners which at the time this was uh you know mid 90s seemed uh seemed extraordinary but the reality was that uh you know <laughs> it wasn't going to work out for me unfortunately and
2: in, in in all seriousness in in least in part seriousness were you a dominant high school baseball player, or at that stage of where talent development was at, were major league baseball teams just throwing money at all these Puerto Rican kids hoping for the next Roberto Clemente?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I was pretty dominant by high school standards, I guess. And um, the only thing I, w- I didn't have was power. So I was a four tool athlete, not a five tool athlete. I was a switch hitter like most Puerto Ricans, again, of my age. Um, we're all raised to be switch hitters. Um, so, but yeah, it just, uh, just didn't work out for me. It was a really tough decision at the time, you know, being 17 years old and basically deciding that your, you know, your first dream wasn't going to come true. Um, but you know, it's an opportunity for growth.
2: So then you go to school and you get into the legal field and you become a attorney doing litigation, Uh, let's spend two minutes there because you go from kind of one extreme of having a life devoted towards sport and being good enough to be drafted by the Mets to another extreme, which is litigation. Uh, for those that don't know, arguably the most intense form of law one could practice.
0: Yeah, it was pretty intense. I mean, it was a pretty circuitous journey to get to law school. Um, in college, I studied cultural anthropology and philosophy, which is, um, you know, great majors to be able to think about other cultures and your own unemployment. Um, and ended up doing international health and human rights work for an organization in Boston called Partners in Health. And in that process, it's Paul
2: Farmer's organization, right? For listeners yeah. that mm-hmm. might be familiar, so Paul Farmer, the great public health physician, recently passed away, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So I was his uh, I was his research assistant for for a couple of years after college, and it was a transformative experience. It's uh, you know, talk about like one of the pillars of my life was was being able to work with him and engage with him. Um, you know, rest in peace. Um, yeah, so did some international health human rights stuff. I was thinking about medical school, realized that I didn't want that life. And, and, of course, realized that after taking, um, you know, the MCATs. But uh, after, after deciding I wanted to go to law school, um, it was pretty much with the focus of doing some sort of public interest, constitutional law, public interest law. So yeah, there I went. And, I wanted to make the biggest impact I could. So that that meant you know trying to be a litigator, trying to do class action litigation and had some success. Um, that paved the way to um, a pretty successful yet ex- uber stressful career that uh, once I stepped away from it, honestly, I didn't realize how stressed I was until I unpacked all that. Um, and it took a couple of years, to be honest. So let's start
1: there. Is your successful you know, this is kind of mirrors your athletic side a little bit. It's like, you're very successful, you're good at what you do. And then you just make this decision to kind of step away or shift. What was that like? And um, as a lawyer or litigation, and then after you describe that, maybe, okay, what, what, what was the next step after the shift?
2: And again, because I think Chris is going to undersell himself, and, and I'm I'm just dropping all of these uh, these big brand names, so y'all know that we truly have the best COO you could ever have, probably the most <laughs> overqualified COO. Mm-hmm. You weren't just a good litigator; you were a clinical professor at the California Berkeley School of Law. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I did that for a few years before. Those that.
2: jobs are like one in a gazillion. So you were you were quite good at. At what you were doing in the legal field, it's not just like you were a solid attorney; you were an attorney that had a professorship at a top twenty law school.
0: Um, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I I like to think that I uh, you know tried really hard to do a good job and, and serve my clients uh, zealously. Um, the nature of my work, which was basically suing the government, trying to keep people housed, trying to keep people getting their benefits, trying to keep people from losing their benefits. Um, you know, just made for, anyway, there's a lot of work to do in those areas. So,
2: yeah. So, so then again, I'm going to, I'm going to echo Steve's question, but I think it's important. So from winning big class action suits, having the prestige of being a clinical professor at Cal Berkeley's law school to COO of the growth equation, I'm sure we could record for hours on that, but how do you get from here to there? Or I well, guess in this case from there to here.
0: Well, I'm gonna have to uh you know name drop one of my favorite books, which is The Passion Paradox by uh, Steve Magnus and Brad Stolberg. Y'all um, might not know because it's the <laughs> book we never plug. <laughs> I plug it constantly. Um you know, I, I think I think earlier in my career I was very focused on, you know, my ego obviously had a healthy ego, um, wanted to win, wanted to excel, wanted to quote unquote make a name for myself. And as I got older, I started seeing more of the nuance and realized that, you know, now I can name it, but it was very disharmonious, uh, the passion. I mean, it pretty much contributed to the failure of my first marriage, Um, you know, loss of friendships because I was just so, so driven. Um, So what happened was I essentially, you know... just had like a, like an epiphany that I, that I wanted to step off of this because I was just so stressed out all the time. And I, I didn't see myself actually moving forward in academia. So I decided to make a hard pivot and essentially quit, um, practicing law as a litigator and move more into sort of the contracts negotiation side and started my own company called at that, at that time it was called Presidio sports management, which was working with athletes and events in the endurance space, which I was heavily involved in. Um, and uh yeah, that's eventually how I, how I met you guys and started I helped you you both essentially create the growth equation um as an idea. One
2: one follow-up question on that, um, because it's in the weeds, but I'm sure some listeners are thinking this. Financially, like what was it like to go from big time lawyer, Berkeley professor, or at least clinical professor? I, I know yeah. that there's like a tenure track and none, and, and all those details um, to starting your own business, representing athletes and any endurance athlete knows there's no money in sport for the athletes. And if <laughs> the agent's taking 15% of no money for the athletes, it's not much. Yeah. Um, how did that transition work is as much as you're comfortable sharing? Because I think it's a really important question because we get so many emails from folks that say, Hey, I want to coach, or I want to start something like the growth equation, or I want to try my blog full time. Yeah. But financially, there's just no money there until there is. And that can take a long time. So, can yeah. you walk us through that
0: a little bit? Sure. I mean, it definitely took some chutzpah. I think that, um, you know, it was a financial hit. I mean, anyone who's a public interest lawyer knows that it's not as glamorous as it sounds financially. Um, being a cow has definitely helped a little bit, but, um, you know, pretty much just, Thank my parents for instilling a sense of, you know, saving money and keen understanding of, you know, the value of compounding interest early on in life, um, to kind of help me weather what was eventually going to be a very big transition. And luckily had the support of my wife and my family to, who basically just told me to to go for it. Um, you know, the whole thing came to me in a dream. Um, and after doing the research and reading a bunch of books on starting your own business and things like that, I decided that, um, you know it was nice it was it was time to try something different and go on this adventure and you know i told myself when i started it that honestly i didn't care if it succeeded or failed i was mostly just and and this is also i think evidence of how far how much maturity i've gotten and how i was able to kind of control my ego a bit it wasn't about success or failure i was just glad that i decided to go out there and try to create something
1: so i think this is worth kind of digging into is that A lot of people struggle with those big decisions and that big change. And it seems like one of the themes throughout your life, as I said, whether we go back to baseball and saying, you know, do I go with the Mets, which is my lifelong dream, or do I go to college? And then here, it's like, do I stay in the comfort zone and do this thing I'm really good at, but it's causing me to, you know, have this unhealthy drive and passion or do I pivot over here? What do you think is, you mentioned like support for family and, and all that good stuff and wife, but what do you think the thing is that allows you to take that jump or make that jump? That's
0: You know, I mean, it's it's a good question. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, this is going to sound kind of cheesy, but when you feel loved and supported and you have a strong sense of community with your family and friends, I mean, that that gives you a certain amount of license. And I feel very lucky with, with my friends, my friend group, um, very supportive wife and family. And I think that that basically just gives me some license to to take some risks. Um, and not that it was a totally uncalculated risk. I mean, I spent about six months sort of researching how to do it and what it was gonna look like. And after a year of starting my business, I totally changed the business model because it wasn't working. Um, and there are definitely uh what my wife and I now you know, sort of fondly call when we took austerity measures around the house for, for about six months when I started the business. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not sure what it, what it is about my personality other than just the, some of my experiences that just told me that I needed to make a change. And it, while it seems drastic, it seemed drastic at the time, um, sort of looking back in hindsight, it was the best decision I ever made, because I realized that I was pretty much unemployable. (laughs) Say more about being unemployable. Well, I've had this, this, this pattern of, you know, my, my grandfather always told me, it's like, Hey, you want to be the best. You got to outwork everyone in the room. And I took that advice to heart very early on. And I think it showed up in the way I take on athletics, the way I take on endurance events or whatever. Um, but What was missing from that advice is, is, uh, you know, I don't think Robert Greene's, you know, 48 Rules of Power uh, was written yet, but there's just a lot that goes on in office dynamics. And I spent a lot of my career worrying about how other people perceive me and worried about how other people are going to perceive my work, whether I'm trying to outshine them or or things like that. And, And definitely, you know, pretty much every job, I was always looking over my shoulder thinking that I was upsetting someone because of my effort which is not a good place to be. And one of the epiphanies I had when I started my own business is like, Hey, I can work as hard as I want, do as great a job as I want without worrying about making other people feel bad. Um, which, you know, I guess listeners can take that whatever way they want. But for me, that was really liberating to just be like, you know, if I want to commit 20 hours to this project, even though it only takes five, I can just do that without people thinking I'm trying to outshine them or somehow, you know, try to do some come up on them or something.
1: Yeah, it really, I mean uh, what I'm hearing from you is it's almost like creating this environment and and security around yourself so that you can you know kind of have some freedom and autonomy to get to do the things that you want to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, it also coincided with um the birth of my of my daughter, which mm. that was pretty transformative and just put a lot of a lot of things in perspective like when she was born I basically took 3 months off from doing anything and just like hung out with her and was there uh being super present when she was born, which was which is, you know, things that you'll never get back. I mean, sure, maybe I miss some prestige or, you know, the other feather in my cap or whatever, but you know, family's the most important thing in the world and, and spending time with her is, is time I'll never get back. And again, because I think it's
2: important for people that are considering what something like this might look like in their own lives. Your wife Susan she has a career as well and she's been working throughout all this too. Mhm.
0: Yeah, and she and she's still she's still very much on the path by the way. She's she's very much like I want to excel, I want to, you know, go up the ranks. Um and I'm totally supportive of that. <laughs> so two things there. Do
2: you think one financially it would have been possible without that? And then number two, would her career be possible if you didn't make this shift, which gives you a fair amount of autonomy and flexibility with the hours that you work and being able to primary parent at times?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that, you know, she's super driven and super smart and I'm supportive in whatever she wants to do. And that's just the way that's the foundation of our relationship. Um, I do think that especially during COVID, uh, my ability to sort of step back and be at home and be super helpful I definitely helped her in her career. Um, and it's just what was required at the time. And that's sort of how we approach it. It's like, how do we need, how, you know, how do we deal with this situation, whether it's COVID, whether it's me switching jobs or starting my own business or her moving on to another position, um, you know, we just make those decisions together. I think, yeah, there, again, the reason I'm pointing this out is,
2: you know, Steve and I the same and and it's a little bit... Um, behind the curtain, but both of our partners, Hillary and Caitlin, have had stable jobs as we've launched the growth equation. Um, And I think that you see that in a lot of relationships where there's someone with stability um, and then someone that is more open to taking risks. And that's not to say that you can't have a relationship where you have two people that are both risk-taking in their careers and want to take risks. Um, but oftentimes a lot of things have to come into place to take big entrepreneurial swings. Um, and, and I think that that's one of those things can be, Oh, is the relationship is such where a two people are working and b one person's aptitude is much more on a defined track. Not to say that, um, there's not equal drive and passion, but it's not as risky. Um, and I think you see that a lot. You see that a lot with professional athletes as well. Um, certainly with entrepreneurs, um, so it's it's just worth noting. It's almost like we talk about the barbell strategy, which Steve and I both did, which is kind of like going down and down and down. Me as uh, a former person that worked for big corporations in healthcare. Steve is working for universities and coaching. As we went up and up and up in entrepreneurial creative pursuits, but you zoom out, and then in all three of our cases, our marriages from a finance standpoint are the barbell effect. Right, we have significant others who have careers and whose jobs are more stable and that comes with benefits of stability. It also comes with the con of like at times longer hours or at least more set hours. And then on the other hand, we can take these risks. Um, It's not just as simple as, oh, quit your job, follow your passion. Um, So always like to point that out. All right. So you launch Presidio Management. At first, you're representing predominantly endurance athletes Then you get also into the event business. So you're working with large marathons, triathlons, Red Bull events, so on and so forth. Um, How did you make the shift from that to the growth equation? I mean, I know how you made the shift, but I'd like to kind of hear in your mind how that worked. Sure. Steve used to be an athlete. I was never a very good athlete, but (laughs) we're certainly not athletes now.
0: Yeah, I mean I think uh the 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 transition happened somewhat organically but also somewhat just like intentionally where where my interests were heading so um after realizing that representing athletes um wasn't really I think the best approach for me for, for what I wanted to do and what I wanted to try to achieve for my business, I started transitioning more to events and brands on that side of thing and basically helping brands decide how to best use athletes or helping events, um, cast their, you know, their value proposition in a way that would entice people to come, whether that's locally, internationally or whatever. Um, and in that process, you know, I knew, I knew a bunch of people and it was, participating in events myself some sometimes at a high level depending on the event and who else showed up um and and yeah just came came to the growth equation through a mutual friend of ours Mario fraoli, who I used to train uh do a crossFit gym in San Francisco with his wife christine, and um that's how I got to know him and was reading his newsletter for a long time and yeah, he essentially started helping him sort of monetize his podcast and sort of shore up his operations um for for his for his newsletter business and yeah he he asked me if i wanted to help you guys and um first thing i did was read was read your books because that's just sort of my uh my mo on stuff which the science of running was a was a behemoth to read steve thank you for that um but yeah instantly i was like wow these guys these guys are great and i instantly gravitated to Uh, no frills, no foo-foo, no bro science approach where, I mean, I love all of my arguments to be well-reasoned. And if they can be based in, you know, ancient wisdom, science, and sort of modern culture applications, I mean, that's that's for me. Okay. So
1: here's, first off, you know, I knew you were the guy because you read Science of Running because that's that's a, a very difficult one to get through because it made
2: me question if you were the guy.
1: Not, not, <laughs> no, man, that's that's the dedication that we need. That's the doing hard things. So I want to transition thing reading <laughs> that book. Thing. <laughs> I, I want to transition into this. Is that you know your athletic background, your law background, all of this, your reading of science running, like you're very <laughs> adept at, at taking on challenges. And one of the yeah. things that, that I think I'm most, you know, curious about, and Brad hinted at it, is that, you know, Brad's a, a, a washed up former or maybe not athlete. You know, I'm a washed up at one time athlete, but both of our, our athletic skills are essentially what I'd call maintenance mode where we're just, you know, Brad's lifting some heavy things to feel good and send videos to you and I. <laughs> and then then I'm just jogging around a park and uh, occasionally sprinting up a hill to not to feel not to feel too bad about losing all my speed and fitness. But you are still like competing and doing some crazy hard things. So I'm wondering if you could outline first what you just did, okay? The challenge you tackled. And then the second part of this is why,
0: why do you, why do you still like do these challenging things? Well, let me address the why first. And the answer to that is, I'm not sure. (laughs) I mean, I I love pushing myself. I love seeing what the sort of the limit of my endurance is. And I love just taking on a a new challenge. And, you know, the event that I recently did, which is a the swimmer world championship, um, a couple of weeks ago that was by far sort of the culmination of a lot of things that that i find really amazing about that sport and about endurance in general and yeah so that's that's basically what i did it, for folks that don't know so Swarm run is basically an adventure slash endurance sport where teams of two now they have solo divisions but purists like me prefer the team aspect um where teams of two navigate a set course, usually either a loop or some sort of point-to-point, alternating between swimming and running while moving through nature as seamlessly as possible. Um, a good way to think about it is sort of amphibious trail running. The sport was born in Sweden almost 20 years ago. Um, and Atala, the Swimmer World Championship, is, is, uh, is, is the course of the original, the first swim run ever, just in a reverse direction that started from a drunken bet from four Swedes who were like, hey, do you think we can get from here to there? took them over 24 hours. It was a ridiculous thing. Um, and yeah, the sport was essentially born after that. Oh,
1: okay. I'm noticing another theme here is you're underselling this. Okay. I want you to, dis- <laughs> I want you to describe exactly what this world championship sure. is
0: from a distance from sure. hopping Island to Island. Let's, let's go. Through no it. problem. No problem. Yeah. So the world championship is a 75 kilometer race. So 46 ish miles uh, that's point to point traversing across 24 islands in the Stockholm archipelago that starts from the island of Sanham to the island of Utah. and the 75k is broken up into about 65k of running so 40-ish miles of running and about 10k of swimming. Uh, and is there
2: any pavement involved or is all the running trail?
0: There is some pavement involved towards the end but for the most part it's trail and trail uh, I would say is, is a loose term for what you're running over. I mean this You know, this this race is very challenging. Um, I would say one of the hardest endurance events in the world. Um, And yeah, an amazing experience. (laughs) So it's 40
2: miles of running over wet rocks, tree roots, logs, bushwhacking, and a little bit of trail.
0: Yeah, climbing stuff, descending with ropes because it's. And you're doing this in a wetsuit? You do it in a wetsuit. So there's the sport has evolved, so there's very specific. You know, there's a very specific kit. It's a wetsuit that's designed that you can run in. Um, You swim with shoes that drain really well. You use a big pool buoy and hand paddles to kind of help you move along the water and kind of compensate for the drag of swimming with shoes. And, uh, yeah, you're you're attached by a tether because you're supposed to be within 10 meters of your partner at all times. So my partner, Chipper Nicodemus, so you guys know – you know, we've done 11 of these things and it just so happened that the 11th one was the world championship, something that we've, um, been dreaming about for a long time. I mean, when I first learned about the sport, this was years and years ago, it was a coffee table book called the world's toughest endurance challenges. And this, this race was in there along with, you know, tour de Stables and all these crazy, crazy events. It seemed impossible. And to think that something like five years later, I would actually do this crazy event, um, was a dream come true. And and you did it also, there's six
2: miles of swimming, just to Mm -hmm. do the math for people, Um, that's obviously broken up between
0: islands. Yeah, it's about, for for swimmers out there, it's about 10,000 yards of swimming. And you're 45? I am. And you did it in 10 hours and 20
2: minutes about? Mm Mm-hmm. So, middle middle of the pack. (laughs) That's a lot of time to be swimming and running on that day. It's even more time to train up for to just be able to survive. Oh, and there's like mega killer jellyfish out there too, because we were joking that you can't get eaten by a shark. And you're like, no, if anything's going to get me, it'd be a mega killer jellyfish. (laughs) So anyways, it's a really intense event, but there's also a lot of training. You've got two kids under six, you Mm -hmm. run the growth equation, you still work with some other brands more than anything, you always pride yourself on being a supportive partner to Susan. Where does the time to train come from? Like, how do you, how do you make, and you're not an insufferable triathlete either. So like, you haven't let it like completely consume your life.
0: <laughs> um, well, I would say, you know, whether it's consuming my life, uh, there is, is this plug for my own podcast called the Low Tide Boys, a swimmer podcast, where it is, it is slightly obsessive if anyone cares to learn more about swimrun on that end. But yeah, I mean, it's all about, I mean, so for me, it's about ranking what my priorities are. And I think about it in terms of pie. There's only pie. So you have to split up and pie is time. You have to split it up in whatever way makes sense, but you can't create time. There's only pie. So if you're going to, if I need to work out two hours, but I still want to be present for my family and make breakfast, take the kids to school and all that stuff, you just have to work it out. And I I try to be, I try to make it as, as, you know, as... (laughs) I guess it's easy as possible for Susan and my family. So it re- usually requires a lot of early morning workouts. Like I'm at the pool at 5:30, try to be back home by eight, get everyone ready for school, take everyone to school, come back, maybe jump on the bike like at 10:30 during a conference call, um, or do things in the evening, just sort of whatever it takes. And then Saturday mornings when we would usually do sort of our longer swimming practices or, or whatnot. Um, again, just try to get those started early. Uh, chipper is a great partner and sometimes, I mean, we've done four hour swimmer practices starting Friday, like at two in the afternoon, because that's the only time I can make it work. Um, And yeah, you just kind of get it done. I mean, our, our philosophy going into this race was to just train as hard as possible and really take it super serious. So when we're there, we can have as much fun as possible and try to not have it turn into some sort of ordeal, which these events can definitely turn into ordeal. I mean, in many ways like the race itself and you know i can wax philosophical about the sport in this race but the race itself is really like an allegory for like being in the living in the moment and surviving because you know this the the course itself the soccer archipelago, is really the main character in this story and participants really have no option but to accept whatever challenges it presents you and trust me it presents you with a ton of challenges um, and you just have to continue to move forward through nature as it unfolds. And that could be choppy water. It can be super slippery rock. It can be, you know, this basically half marathon run that you have to do two thirds of the way through the race. Um, That's, that's was a beast. Um, Yeah. I mean, the race is really a quest that's testing you physically. You have to be prepared for, but it's also this mental, this mental quest because you have to remain focused. You have to stay on the task at hand. And the course is so challenging that, you know, if you lose focus for a minute, you're tripping on a rock, you're falling off a cliff, you're swimming the wrong way, you know, siding wrong. There's all these there's all these perils, which this race could never happen in the US because of that. But um but yeah, it's 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 a perilous race, but at the same time, it's 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 totally magical to move through this environment. So
1: I I I I totally understand that. And as a endurance athlete, I I agree completely with everything you said on on the challenges that endurance stuff brings. My question is, I'm going to push you on this is coming back to why it's like, is the thing that this fulfills? Is it that challenge, that sense of being alive or that magic you get of going through this experience? Or is it something else? Like, what do you think draws you to, you know, I, I, you know, rearrange part of your life to go run a race that takes 10 hours and yeah. avoids jellyfish <laughs> that are going to kill you?
0: I mean, it's a good question. And I definitely asked myself why during the race about a thousand times. Um, I, th- I think it, it just goes back to, I'm a very high energy person. I don't sleep a lot at baseline. I have, just have a lot of energy to burn. My kids have that, which I guess that's what I get for being a hyperactive child. I get hyperactive children that are acting just like I did when I was, when I was their age. Um, and, and then, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I still have a healthy ego. I like to see what I'm capable of when I sort of refound my endurance after uh, law school and when my marriage was falling apart. I mean, I was about 55, 60 pounds overweight, still sexy, but, you know, there's just a lot more of <laughs> me to love. Um, and I just didn't like what I was turning into. I mean, I was always the type of person who could just do anything in any moment athletically and I wasn't that person anymore. So when I started finding my fitness, which also coincided with when I started dating Susan, um, she has probably a very interesting perspective, haven't seen it all from the beginning for me training for my first marathon and everything that came after that. Um, yeah, just just I want to see what I'm capable of, I, I just have so much energy to to sort of expend, And I feel like I'm the best version of myself. I'm like a puppy, you know, tired puppies are happy puppies. So if I'm not, doing something athletically um i just feel incomplete
2: so one additional additional thought question on that which is do you think that you could live without it and i don't mean without doing something athletically I mean, without the competition, the big goal, the measuring up on a scoreboard, the trying to yeah. beat yourself, perhaps trying to beat others, because you could train five, six days a week for an hour. This is much more of an all-in approach. And do you view this as a season of your life? Do you view it as scratching an itch that you don't get elsewhere? Say more about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like... Um I'm really only competing with myself. I don't, I'm not a big leaderboard person anymore. I've sort of moved past that. I mean, real, the reality is I'm 45. My partnership is 35, but we have similar goals as to, you know, within the sport of Swarm run, like we know we're not setting the world on fire. It's mostly just to see what we're capable of and do the best job that we can. Um, and that's, and that's a, that's a pursuit in and of itself. Um, and I think it also, this definitely became true for me during COVID, when I was sort of listless. When a lot of my clients bit, went out of business, and um, I didn't have as much work um, to, to to do, that I my relationship with endurance and you know running, swimming, whatever changed, which became much more about um, you know how am I going to express my fitness today and try to experience joy, um, and maybe that was as Steve as Steve would say, maybe I, I would go see God, you know, one day and just kill myself on some super hard hill repeats, or just go for a, you know, a cruise on the gravel bike or go for a swim or do nothing or or whatever. And, and really just, you know, choose it, take every day as an opportunity to be grateful for the fitness I have. And, and yeah, and that, that really helped me get through some of the dark times of COVID um, from a, you know, from a professional perspective, but it also, it's really informed everything that's happened since, which is, you know, starting the podcast, going all in on swim run, helping sort of, you know, essentially becoming sort of the chief evangelist for swim run in the US um and the world, I guess. And and yeah, just just trying to see trying to see what the limits of my endurance are, you know, not necessarily comparing myself to anybody else.
2: Do you worry that swim run, and maybe worry is the wrong word, because to be clear, there are pros and cons when this happens, but do you think that swim run is going to go the same way as triathlon and ultra running? And what I mean by that is triathlon started, you know better than me, I want to say like early 80s, late 70s in San Diego, and it was a bunch of lifeguards, and it was the most kind of cult, under the radar, these people are wackadoo sports. And now it's a huge commercial business Mm -hmm. and ultra running fast forward 20, 25, 30 years. Same thing was a bunch of hippies with beards and tie dye shirts, burying themselves. And now it's becoming increasingly commercial. Um, One, do you think that'll happen to swim run Two, do you think it's good, bad, or just is?
0: Yeah. uh, So that's a really good question. And it's actually something that I, that I think a lot about, um, going to Sweden and actually going to sort of like the birthplace or Mecca of swim run, um, really gave me a lot of hope for the sport. So the sport is almost 20 years old. It still has this sort of dirt baggy old school ultra running trail runner vibe. Um, it's all about community. Yes. While you're on the course, you're racing against everyone, but at the end you're breaking bread together, you're commiserating, <laughs> you know, celebrating whatever it is. And, and anyone who finishes a swim run feels part of that community and being in Sweden, you know, just how welcoming everyone was going to the original event, the most marquee event in the sport, and just seeing that it's really the same vibe, just kind of, you know, on steroids compared to what it is in the U S to me tells me that if the sport has survived this long by maintaining that sense of community, that sense of, um, you know, inclusiveness that, uh, I think it has a good chance to, to stay the same. I think obviously as things get more commercialized, as there's more events, you know, to support the larger, the, the, the sport is the more it requires financial support from sponsors and that. So there might be some change, but I think in terms of the community part of it and the inclusiveness part of it, I hope that never changes because honestly that to me, that was the biggest turnoff of triathlon where you go to like a, you know big pickup and it's just it's always like a pissing contest of some kind it's like oh what's your bike split or whatever and it's just swim run especially something like the world championship like every person that lines up to the start of this thing has my respect i don't care if you dnf'd i don't care if you came in first or last like respect this thing i mean everything about this race and the sport in general it's just i mean it's just totally random. I mean, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, even for example, the world championship, even the water is unique. Like if you're in the Baltic sea, the water is like super brackish. So it's basically like swimming in Lake water. That's a little salty. Like it has like the texture and feel of Lake water, but it's like cold and there's jellyfish swimming by or floating by. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. The terrain, it's ridiculous. I mean, there's races, there's about eight swim runs in the U S and nothing comes close to the terrain, Um, you know, the closest race is one in in Casco Bay, Maine, where there's one Island that's kind of, that's kind of wild. This is like every Island was kind of wild. It was just, (laughs) it was just ridiculous, you know? I I love it. It seems like a more,
1: it's like a pure connection and community where it is really about the, the kind of journey more than the overselling of, we'll just call it the ego, right? Which happens in all sports is eventually our egos take over. So it does become that kind of pissing contest to show like your status, your whatever. So, and we lose some of that purity that I think, you know, goes back to why most of us fall in love with endurance sports. You know, I look back at how I got involved in cross country. It wasn't because, you know, I was winning some trophy or what have you is because like the team, the camaraderie, camaraderie of doing something that at that time was really, really challenging and difficult. And you didn't know if you could kind of what you could do or if you could surpass those ex- your expectations or meet your goals or what have you.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, I feel like, um, this sport in particular, it's, it's, the ego almost takes a backseat because of the team aspect. Like you have to be there for your partner you have to make sure that they're okay, um, and and it's what what ends up happening is you know you're capable of much more when you're concerned about your partner and trying to take care of them. Like you're basically more than the sum of your parts, and I think that that aspect alone takes it away from sort of your time trial mentality that a you know or like a marathon thing where you where it's just a solo pursuit that's just all about you. When I have to make sure Chipper's all right, he's making sure I'm all right. We're making tactical decisions together to take care of each other, um, you know. And I, I think there's a there's a Swedish word that is sort of very pervasive in their culture, and it's uh, it's called jantelagen, which essentially just means like humi- humility. Um, and you know, in Swedish culture, it's you people rarely boast about themselves. It's very anti sort of like being super. Super like, oh, look at me. I'm so great. Whereas, yeah, obviously that's very different here in the States. Um, and I think that ethos of just like, you know, even the world champions who won this race in a record time this past year, I mean, super nice. I mean, we'd, we'd interviewed them for our, for our podcast. And after the race, they're asking us how we're doing and stuff. And it's just like, you know, here it'd be like, they would even talk to you. <laughs> you know, they would, they would just like busy doing their own thing. And, and they're just like really nice and kind people. And I think... Um, when you see that from the elite class, that only that can only trickle down to to the to sort of the average age group or athletes or team athletes like like Chipper and myself.
2: Love it. Well, my last question for you today, at least, Chris, is the other day on the phone, you were riffing philosophical about sport and this was still in that acute period where the race had just passed. And I wrote this down. You said, man, like sports, just such a wonderful microcosm for life. And I tend to agree that there's just so much that we can learn in sport and through having a physical practice about getting through challenging things, knowing yourself, paying attention to the signals your body is saying, working through fear, being in a community, so on and so forth. This past training cycle for you in this race, what's the thing that you think will have the biggest impression on you broadly in the rest of your life that you've, um, that you've put in your, your bag?
0: Oh man. I mean, I I think it's a, it's a couple things. Um, one, obviously I'm super proud for what Chipper and I were able to do. Like to go in there with the goal of not hurting ourselves and do something respectable and train as hard as we did, you know, for seven months leading up to this thing and actually have a good day, which that's never guaranteed. I mean, you could be trained up. And then if it's triathlon, you got a flat tire or something, and you're essentially your race is over, or you're trying to PR half marathon and your shoelace gets untied and your PR time is, is gone. Um, you know, so, so I'm super proud of what we're able to achieve. And I think the fact that we basically looked at this huge mountain and climbed it and came, came down the other side successfully and, and happy. I think that's something I'll take with me and, and just, you know, I already love the sport. So this just deepened. If I, if I hadn't already loved the sport, this race would have definitely put me over the top. Um, You know, and I think there, there's some more subtle things like even, even like your concept of time, you know, you spent all this time training hours and hours and hours. And during the race, you know, time kind of takes on a different meaning. Like this race is so challenging that, you know, at first few islands, time is going really slow. And you're like, oh my God, we've only covered like 10K and it's been like two hours. And the first islands are really re- like extra crazy. Um, but then as you move on, like time starts passing like really quickly and you don't even notice it. And you look down in your watch and you're like, oh, I'm three hours in. Oh, I'm six, I'm seven hours in. Like what, how did this happen? Um, and I feel like to me that that was one of the coolest things. And And we were, you know, folks who've done the race before told us is that's kind of what happens where you just get into this, this flow state where, you know, you're just totally present. You're totally in the element. You're totally in this bubble where all you're doing is trying to get from A to B. You don't have to think about anything else except taking care of your partner and moving through this incredible terrain. And I think that to me is something that I'm going to try to keep where it's just like trying to get a really good, uh, just, just feeling like you, can do things that it doesn't matter how long it takes. It's just about getting through it. And, and I think that lesson to me was, was, was one I'm definitely going to try to keep.
2: You just, you did just contradict yourself. And I want to pull on this because you said Go at the it. start of that answer, like you want to finish in a respectable time or mm-hmm. in a, a respectable manner. Sure. Which I hear is time. And I presume that's what you mean by that. But well, then you're also saying like, you just want to finish.
0: Yeah. Well how do I, you hold
2: those two things in sure, tension?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, so so that's that's part of the ego thing, right? It's like you spend all this time training, you want to try to put in a performance that's commensurate with that and something that you're capable of. Um are is that does that involve some delusions? I mean, we try to we try to keep the delusions at a minimum going into this race just because it was such an unknown. Um but uh but yeah, at the same time it's 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 balancing the ego and all the work you put in to do a decent result while at the same time just being in the experience and just come what may. Uh, Because a race like this, much like in life, there's a lot of curveballs and you just have to be able to weather whatever happens. Um, And that could have meant like slipping and falling, tripping, nutrition going bad. Like there's there's like a million things that could have happened. And the fact that, you know, you can only prepare for what you can and then the rest you just have to kind of, I mean, this is something... Brad, that you and I have talked about, is like, you just have to trust that when the challenge presents itself, that you'll have the tools and the, um, you know, ability to respond. Um, I mean, one thing that I really try to keep with this race was, with Steve, was your concept from Do Hard Things was just like, how can I find equanimity and just kind of stay in this zone where there's a lot of things happening, there's things I can control, there's things I can't, and how do I stay in this space where I'm just trying to respond as much as possible to everything that's coming in and not just reacting or, you know, getting emotional or or doing anything like that. And I think, um, I mean, again, one of the things I'm most proud of is I was, you know, for most of the race, I was able to kind of stay in that zone and, and as well as chipper, I mean, I think we were both super proud of, of how we communicated and how we managed to, to kind of just enjoy the experience as it was happening, as it was unfolding.
1: Love it, yeah. That's so. That's wonderful. I love that, Chris. And thanks for bringing in two hard things there. So, um, always worth it because, yeah. As I as I joked at before, but I just can't imagine ten hours of racing, hopping island to island. Um, it's just otherworldly. Um, so, all the respect here, and Chris. I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. But more than that, all the work that you do. for for the growth equation. You literally do keep it on track and make sure that we don't run into iceberg because Brad and I are horrible drivers, captains, steers of this ship. We just go off the rails. Um, And for listeners, what I would ask is, you know, for your input on this episode, like, Do you like the behind the scenes that Chris kind of brings? And if you do, we'd love to kind of, you know, build on that and have more of that. So give us some feedback or or some other information on how um, Chris can, uh, you know, contribute more. And the last thing I would say is if you enjoyed what Chris had to say, the best place to support Chris and the growth equation, but really Chris is to sign up for Patreon because that is what allows us to employ Chris to do the wonderful things and contributions that he does for the growth equation to keep the ship um, straight ahead and and not going off, you know, into iceberg. So if if you want to keep us going, like
2: patreon.com slash the growth equation, that's how we get it done. And if you are into swim run or you want to get more into swim run, Uh, I'm sure Chris would be thrilled to hear from you. So you can email him at chris.growtheq at gmail.com. And you should also check out his podcast, which is the Low Tide Boys. And um, we will include that in the show notes. So with that, have a wonderful week and we'll catch you all on Wednesday. And Chris, thanks again for all that you do and for joining us this week.
0: Thanks for having me.